And now, back to Gunsmoke. By 1960, practically all the lifeblood had been drained out of network radio, and the handwriting seemed to be on the wall for what dramatic programs remained. CBS no longer canceled individual shows. They canceled entire program blocks. Change seemed to be the watchword. And the executives that were lowering the curtain on radio drama seemed to be of a different breed. Gone were the men with programming backgrounds. It was quite a change from the late 1940s, as Norman MacDonald recalls. It seems to me that in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, the executives, whether whether men like Guy Della Chapa or Harry Ackerman or whomever, were men with a an experience in and a feeling for uh, the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a uh, a conference or a meeting with the uh, then CBS brass. Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea, and you either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no. I had an idea that there could be a a sort of a female gun smoke, if you will, only modern. I went to Harry Ackerman and said that I thought if we could get Joan Fontaine to play the lead in a script I'd written. We could cut an audition record. That was in the days when we used 16-inch acetates. And it would be a thing of beauty, and everybody would be crazy about the whole thing. And, of course, it didn't work that way. Uh, Miss Fontaine did do the audition record, but it wasn't very good. My point, however, is that in the space of about a six-minute conversation in Harry Ackerman's office, I walked out with the knowledge that I could have a studio, an engineer, an orchestra, a, a recording session, a cast, and Miss Fontaine, all agreed to in about five minutes. And it takes more than that to ride up in an elevator today to one of the executive's offices. Writer John Dunkel agrees. I think that the decisions are made now by people who really have no training or understanding in the creative fields. They are mostly businessmen. Their only concern is, is economic. And the young people who move into the so-called creative spots, I don't know how they're supposed to have the, the understanding to do it because they have no training. They, they have no background at all in, in creative work. They don't understand writing. They don't understand directing. They don't understand anything about it. It's all economic. And this began back in those days. Uh, it began with the great importance placed upon the sales department. John Daner summed it up this way. Radio was deserted by its own mother and father. It was left to lie on the doorstep and wither and die. Consciously and willfully. Gunsmoke's final broadcast was in June 1961. Harley Bear and George Walsh recall the cancellation. I'm glad we didn't know when we were doing the last show. It would have been a terribly 
depressing thing to know that this was the last time. As it is, we went blithely on our way. We, we did the last show, and uh, I think I was working on a petticoat junction when I got word that it had been uh, taken off the air. The last program had a line at the end that said, this concludes the current series of Gunsmoke on CBS radio, and I think that was the extent of it. There were personal feelings involved, too. We had, I think, more more of ourselves put into that show than almost any other series. I know that I never felt about any other series that I did as keenly as I did about Gunsmoke, or loved it as much. And the others were the same the same way. We loved doing what we did. We, we felt... And Norman allowed this feeling that we were all a contributing factor to it in whatever facet we appeared. Following the program's cancellation, practically everyone connected with the series went on to other lucrative areas of the entertainment industry. All have done quite well. The past 15 years has also given the Gunsmoke Company time to reflect on the ingredients that made the show a success. First, John Dunkel. The people involved were simply excellent. It was kind of a culmination that had been building all through the 40s there. We had some marvelous actors. Uh, many of them went on to stardom. And we had good, good writers, the very best writers. Uh, Les Crutchfield and, and Walter Newman and Jim Poe and all kinds of people. And we had Norman at the helm, who was a very talented man. And uh, John kind of riding herd and riding so many of them. And uh, it was just a great combination, that's all, from the very beginning. Norman McDonald used to say very often, because we had a success story almost overnight, that the success of Gunsmoke was a three-way effort. The script, the actors, and the music. Uh, he was very generous in saying this because, of course, he was also a very able director and the direction should have been thrown in there as well. I think it was an instant success because it was different. Westerns up to that time had been all pretty much the, the, the Hopalong Cassidy type thing, uh, the Lone Ranger, uh, more or less simple stories that uh, appealed to youngsters of all ages. I think uh, even today's westerns tend to be fairly simple storylines. As they say, they're about four basic plots and you change the names. Gunsmoke came along with stories that were not necessarily the typical western. They're, they were emotional stories. The stories were, again, more adult, more sophisticated, uh, more far-reaching, I suppose you might say, in, in so many aspects that I think the show was different. It was something that hadn't been presented to the American public before. I think that it, it gave the listener the benefit of a respect, possibly, that Western producers hadn't up to that time. I think the time taken, whereas most of the uh, uh, radio shows were done with a, a sense of, of, of hurry and time. There was time to pause, to think. There was time to establish in the minds of the people, again, I, I can't do anything except uh, say that uh, radio, the magic of it is to give a visual feeling to the listener. There was time taken for that to establish a character. The writing, the writers were brilliant in that. 
The sound men were the greatest. They had uh, these guys on the council, the sound, uh, were imaginative, and uh, they were inspired. And Norman uh, was so good. Norman had this beautiful sense of timing the show, so that he was never too pressed, and you never felt pressed as an actor, so that you had to keep your eye on one eye on the, on the booth to gauge your dramatic reading. Usually, if you had a sense of timing, the scene played as if it played a press rehearsal. All I can say is it was ten years of of having a ball every Saturday morning, of uh, not only uh, uh, enjoying the, uh, the the drama of it, but of laughing, of, of, of humor, and of, of having your wits uh, exercised a little bit. The success of any series has to do with the charisma that the leading character has. You can give it the best stories and the best production in the world and the best support in the world, and if the guy or the gal does not have it, it isn't going to make it. And it can get by with a minimum of all of those things if whoever it is has the lead causes people to say, hey, come on, let's tune in on old so-and-so tonight. By God, I sure like to see how he's going to whip all those bad guys, you know. It's uh, it's charisma, that's all, and I, I can't define it. I don't know what it is, what causes it, what causes the lack of it. Some people have it, some people don't, that's all. Please don't think that I'm uh, an egomaniac. I, I, I stand back and look at this. I've been on the other side for so long that I can evaluate quite clearly without being involved emotionally or ego-wise. There was great character development. God, we used to go in with uh, 11-page scripts. Take all the time in the world to do it. And the production values of really paying attention to sound effects and playing them for what they are and realistically. And John's contribution of uh, taking an incident and making it a story instead of doing a full-fledged full-blown opening, closing with the middle and uh, contrapuntal characterizations. It was uh, the story of a man, basically, or if it wasn't that man, then it was somebody else that that man was involved with very deeply. We all really felt very strongly that we had something. And uh, I think we all treated it very carefully. We were lucky people. Well, we really were. This became a labor of love with everybody on the show. And uh, uh, I know I still have in my library a number of books dealing with uh, that phase of United States history in and around Dodge City and and uh, western Kansas and, and eastern Colorado and around there. None of us could have written like John Neston did and some of the subsequent writers on there. But uh, if there was a detail that was inaccurate or a period of time or an era that was not painted we would all give tongue and say no that is not right and we went about bringing uh, some of our reference books in there and said look I, I'm mine and that was you know that was the kind of the amazing thing when Bill was when it made the transition from radio to television 
as they described Wyatt Earp and uh, uh, Tillman and uh, some of the Clay Allison and some of the lawmen of that day, and many of the lawmen of that day and era had been former gunmen and desperados themselves, and then uh, robbing got to be too competitive, or hijacking or uh, road agenting became too competitive, and they quit, and these guys were good. They could control the, the baser element, and so some of the world's greatest outlaws became well-known for being lawmen. But you see men in those days, and women too, were not as big as they are now. A six-foot man was a tremendously big man. And uh, Bill had, was not as heavy then as he is now, but it was amazing how well he physically fit the descriptions of many of the old-time lawmen in there. And, uh, you know, Bill, I still think, is one of America's great unsung heroes so far as acting is concerned. Bill had a built-in mechanism, still does, that allows him to act with a greater reserve than he uses. I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but I know uh, we were told in drama classes and whatnot, don't use everything you've got in every scene. Well, Bill doesn't, you feel that no matter how angry he got, how strong he was, how sad he was, how happy, how joyful, he still had 60% of his potential left. And that's an amazing thing. That, and he, he does that today on canon, that you feel, don't push him any farther because he still has more than he's got right now. And very few actors have that. You strive all your life to acquire the ability to act with reserve. And I'm, by that I mean reserve of power. But Bill has it. And that came over so forcefully in radio that, of course, he has a, a voice like... Uh, a pipe organ. It's a magnificent instrument. And Bill could command with his voice and had the ability to, to paint such pictures in his shadings and readings and whatnot. And, and I, I don't think that today Bill has ever really come into his own. As great as he is in canon, as great as he's been in other shows that he's done, his, his firm, potent ability has never really been unleashed. Well, I don't know. In these days, they, I think they'd say the chemistry was right. Uh, in those days, I guess radio had just about come to its golden age. The, the uh, mistakes and all the hard knocks were pretty well behind it, and uh, TV had not yet made any serious inroads. So the, I think that the timing was one thing to be considered. And, of course, I wasn't privy to the information having to do with the selection of the, the four principals, Bill Conrad and Parley Bear and Georgie Ellis and Howard McNear, but uh, that was a masterful stroke. They, they certainly uh, were, were uh, represented a quartet of a fine talent. And then when you put with them people like uh, John Daner and uh, Lawrence Dobkin and Vic Perrin and... Uh, uh, James uh, Nusser and some of the others, uh, it, it it just couldn't miss. Now, this is not even getting into the area of John Meston and Norman MacDonald. Well, I think, first place, you have to go back, I have to almost be imaginative, but it was fairly new, the, the, the style, the form, the approach to the Western and so on. And also, I think, because it was goddamn well done. I mean, great actors, and, and Norm did a hell of a job, and sound... God, what he did with sound it was marvelous. And 
it was new, and I, I guess people, you never know what they're going to like. They, they enjoy the characters. And, uh, I mean, you never know where it comes from. I ran into a guy who was waiting in a line somewhere recently, and my name came up, and some guy said, oh, you have the same name as a writer. And I said, yeah. And he said, did you ever hear of Messon? I said, yeah. And I said, what, me? And he blew his, he just had a fit. And he said, my God, he was so proud. And the guy from Chicago, and the interesting, the interesting thing is that in Chicago, he said in the radio, they had a club that would meet every week or 10 days and discuss gun smoke and the scripts and the ideas. But you know, you're, when you, you write something, send it in or, or do it, you, you, don't, you kind of forget there's an audience out there. And, and these people would sit around and discuss the, uh, what had gone on. I don't know, the moral aspects or whatever. I suppose that's the one reason it was popular, I, I guess. But you never know how, how to approach them. You, you do what you want to do, and if you like it, somebody else likes it, and you're in luck. Otherwise, they send you down the street. I would truly enjoy going back to the old days of being completely involved in radio. Uh, there was a marvelous feeling, which doesn't often exist anymore, marvelous feeling of going home after you finished your day's work and indeed finished your program and sitting down and saying, boy, I, I liked what happened today. I liked the show we did. I, I feel good about it. And being able to sit there sometimes, if it was tape delay or something, and hear your own show was a great sense of satisfaction. Uh, no committees, no groups. Uh, you, as the director, handled the music and the sound and the announcer and uh, the cast. And you were completely involved and, uh, and so were usually completely satisfied. The beauty, of course, was that the next morning you got up and started on the script for the following day or two days later or five days later, and you were starting a whole new world all over again, which you wanted to deliver in three days and had to be confined to 29 minutes and 30 seconds. And this, I think, was the beauty of radio. Each member of the audience, however big or however small, had a chance to exercise his own imagination and to draw his own pictures and add it to what he heard. I'd had my own private Matt Dillon, my own sexy particular Kitty, my own bumbling Doc, and my own nutty Chester, and they all did things and looked exactly the way I wanted them to look. Bill Robeson said that America may well have forgotten how to listen. And I think this might well be true. So many of us are apt to sit in front of the television set. Whether we really absorb anything or not, I don't know. We sit and we watch in radio, which has been called the theater of the mind. Your imagination worked and drew for you whatever pictures you wanted. The theater of the mind's been dark for nearly 15 years now, and I think perhaps it's time somebody turned the lights up again.
Hello, Chester. Oh, come on in, Doc. Ah, where's Matt? He ain't here. Say, where have you two been the last couple of days? I haven't seen either one of you. Well, I just got back from Hayes City. Mr. Dillon sent me there to fetch some government papers. And you know what? I took the Santa Fe both ways, well, you Doc. did? Mm. Oh, well, that beats riding. Uh, uh, but where's Matt, you say? Well, he left the note, but he didn't say exactly where he was at. Well, you mean he's out of town? That's what the note said. It seems somebody told him where he could find Jack Brand. Jack Brand? Well, what's he doing around here? I don't know. I guess Missouri got too rough for him. Why don't they handle their own outlaws instead of chasing him into Kansas for Matt to catch? Mr. Dillon says Brand's got three of his gang with him. You mean Matt's gone out alone after four men? Well, if I knew where he was, I'd go help him, Doc. Oh, well, there's nothing you can do about it, Chester. Yeah, it worries me, though. That last holdup the gang pulled, they say four men got shot down. Oh. Well, maybe they've quit. Maybe that's why they came to Kansas. Now, when you ever hear of a bunch of outlaws quitting? No, yes, no. I guess I was just talking to myself. Just... Faster! Oh. Faster! Well, that's what you're doing, Doc. Uh, where is he? Well, there he is, sitting on that wagon. Oh, yes. Well, who's that with him? Some fellow give him a ride, I guess. Hello, Mr. Dillon. Hello, Chester. Doc. Hey, you lose your horse, Matt? We left our horses out at Bowers Ranch and borrowed this wagon. One of his riders will bring him in tomorrow. Who's this with you, Mr. Dillon? You've seen his picture, Chester. Oh, my goodness. It's Jack Brand. Let's get on, Brand. You first. For sure. How come you let him drive the wagon, Mr. Dillon? To keep his hands full. Chester. Here, take my shotgun and lock him up. Yes, sir. Where's the others? I thought he had three men with him. Well, tell him, Marshal. Tell him where they are. They're in the wagon, Chester. Out of that canvas. Mm-hmm. But are they all dead, Matt? Uh, all three of them? They're all dead, Doc. Bloodiest marshal I ever saw. It's just a wagon load of meat to him. That's enough, Brandon. It ain't hardly enough. I never seen such killing. What happened, Mr. Dillon? It doesn't matter. They put up a fight and I had to take them. Well, I'll tell him what happened. You're a lawman here. Hid himself in the grass and just waited for us to come out of that cabin. And then he yelled, so naturally we headed for cover. Who wouldn't? He just laid there and he cut loose of the shotgun. Tore up two of the boys that way. Then he stood up and he cut down Hank Smith with a six-shooter. How come you got out of it, Brand? I jumped back in the cabin and I give up. We weren't putting up a fight. He spooked us yelling like that. Make any man jump. Oh, I suppose you're trying to say that you wouldn't have shot. We tried to shoot him. Who wouldn't? Any man's got a right to defend himself. Oh, well, I never heard of resisting arrest called self-defense. I never heard of no marshal shooting down everybody on the landscape. Lock him up, Chester. Get going, Brian. Well, if you actually think he was killing hogs, not men, shut up and keep bloody <laughs> See, how come you brought the bodies back, Matt? Why didn't you just bury him out there? I wanted more witnesses than me to identify him, Doc. Might save trouble when Bran goes to trial. You say you were mighty lucky taking four outlaws that way, man. Yeah. And you kill three out Oh, say, wait till people around here hear about this. Bran's right, Doc. It's a lot of killing. An awful lot. Oh, no, you don't. You don't get to thinking about it too much now, man. It's your job. You did it. So it's over. It's over? Wait till tomorrow or the next day. There'll be somebody else. There's always another man to kill. Oh, no, that's not the way to look at it, man. I've never heard of you shooting anybody you didn't have to. No, I never did. But sometimes that doesn't help much. 
So you look tired, man. Well, I haven't slept since I rode out of here two days ago. Well, now, you get some rest, and you'll feel better. Sure. Brand snug in jail, Mr. Dillon. He don't like it much, but I told him not to try kicking his way out, that I'd be sleeping in the office. We'll both be sleeping in the office, Chester. I'm too tired to walk to my room. Uh, take care of this wagon. And what's in it, will you? Mm-hmm. You and Doc can identify those men. We'll write it out on paper in the morning. All right, sir. Uh, I'll be coming to bed about midnight, but I'll be real quiet. Nothing could wake me, Chester. Not tonight. I shouldn't wake him up and tell him. It can wait until morning, Chester. Matt's too tired to do anything about it tonight. Mm, I guess you're right. Of course I am. Well, okay. Good night, Chester. Good night, Doc. Mr. Dillon, no, I'm up. spilling up blood. I don't want to kill you. No, Dillon, Mr. Dillon, wait. No, it isn't me, Mr. Dillon. It's Chester. There ain't nobody what? here. What? You, you, you was asleep. You, you, you've been dreaming. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'll light the lamp. No, 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 no. It's all right, Chester. My gracious, I, I come in and I heard you talking and I, I thought somebody was here. That. Moonlight ain't too bright. I couldn't see good at first. Sure. My, I had to yell at you a couple of times before you woke up. You was dreaming you was in a fight, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I was dreaming. Nightmares like that, they're, they're just terrible, ain't they? There's a bottle in the desk drawer over there. Chester, get it for me, will you? Yes, sir, I know where it is. have nightmares sometimes when I was a boy, but I don't get them much no more. Thanks, Mr. Dillon. Good stiff drink will be good. Oh, thanks, Chester. Midnight. Jack Brand awake? No, he'd be bellering if he was. But, Mr. Dillon, now that you're awake, there's something I ought to tell you. 
Well, what? Well, me and Doc was having a drink over at the Alpergans, and a fellow come in there and started talking real loud. Talking about what? Well, sir, mostly about how he's going to tree-dodge and how he's going to tell you, too. Oh? He says he's a friend of Jack Brand's, and he's heard about how you caught him and all. What's his name? Stanger. Joe Stanger. Yeah, I know him. Well, you think he'll cause trouble? Probably. And I'm not going to worry about him tonight. Yeah, no, sir. That's what me and Doc figured. He won't try nothing tonight. All the same, keep your gun handy, Chester. Now, let's try to get some sleep. Chester, it's hardly dawn. Swear I'd like to throw a bucket of water on him. Oh, shut up, Brand. I'm coming. Drop it, Brand. What? You're not hurt. I hit the gun. I got the keys, Mr. Dillon. I'll get his gun out of there. All right, go ahead. Stand back, Brand. You like to bust my hand. You're lucky. Eh, lucky you didn't kill me, I suppose, just like you kill everybody. Shut up. I got it, Mr. Dillon. It ain't no good anyway. Not now. Where'd you get that gun, Brent? I made it, Marshal. Don't be smart. Oh. Wait a minute. Joe Stanger brought it to you. He tossed it to you right through those bars on the window. I didn't, didn't know Stanger was in town. Didn't you? Chester, get some boards and nail them over the window so nothing can get through it. I'll fix it, Mr. Dillon. Oh, wait a minute, Marshal. That's the only window in here. You can't board it up. You'll get enough air. Nobody will be dark. I don't like it dark. Don't you? When you get it fixed, we'll go to breakfast, Chester. It won't take long, Mr. Dillon. It's been some time since I've been out on the plaza this early in the morning, Mr. Dillon. Oh, weren't you up gambling all night last Saturday, Chester? Oh, well, that's different. Oh, how? Well, I've been asleep all night this time. Things look different when you had a good night's sleep. Yeah, they sure do. You didn't have no more nightmares last night, did you? No, but I didn't sleep well. You you ought to take some time off. Go out buffalo hunting or something. Yeah, maybe I ought to take a lot of time off. Wait a minute, Chester. What? That's Joe Stanger coming there. And by golly, it is. What's he doing up so early? Maybe he wants to find out why Jack Brand hasn't shot his way out of jail yet. Well, he won't throw him no more guns. Not the way I got that place boarded up now. Get out of the way, Chester. Yes, sir.
morning, Marshal. You're up early, Stenger. Train leaves for Abilene in about an hour. Going to Abilene? I'll be back next week. Jack Brandt will still be in jail. I heard you caught him. Good friend of yours, isn't he? Sure. But I ain't part of his gang. Never was. Yeah, I know. Of course, there ain't much gang left now. No. You're a pretty rough man, Marshal. And I have to be. Don't it ever bother you, killing people the way you do? Stanger, I shot a gun out of Jack Brand's hand this morning. You come by the office later and I'll give it back to you. Now, what would I want of a smashed up six shooter? It's yours, isn't it? Where in mine? I ought to throw you in jail, too. What for? To get you out of sight, if nothing else. I wouldn't go to jail, Marshal. Not without a fight, I wouldn't. I ain't afraid of you. You want to try it? Go ahead. Go ahead, draw. No. What's the matter, Marshal? I thought you liked killing men. What's holding you back? You're going to have to fight me sooner or later. Get out of here, Stanger. Go get on your train. <laughs> Wait till I tell everybody about Matt Dillon. How he's lost his nerve. Get out, I said. Well, I don't want to shoot down a man that won't draw. Not today, anyway. But I'll be back, Marshal. Next week. Why didn't you shoot him, Mr. Dillon? He's nothing but a big bluff. Just so you go on to breakfast, I'm going back to the office. What? Why, you told me... You heard me! Well, yes, sir. Okay, Mr. Dillon. Can full of coffee, Mr. Dillon. Thanks, Chester. I'm going to put it right here. What you doing, writing a letter? It's a telegram. Here, Chester. Take this down to the depot, will you? Sure. I want it to go out right away. U.S. War Department. What are you telegraphing Washington about? That's my resignation, Chester. What? I'm quitting right now. Why, you can't do that. I've done it. Oh, I don't believe it. You're funny now. A man can quit a job, Chester. I've quit jobs before. Well, I know, but this is different. What's different about it? The government doesn't own me. But think what'll happen if you ain't marshal here. There are other men can be marshal. Mr. Dillon. What? You ain't doing this because of, well, what Joe Stanger said. That I've lost my nerve? No, he's wrong about that. And he's wrong about my liking to kill men, too. You never killed nobody unless you had to. And now I don't have to. I'm through, Chester. I knew I was through when I didn't draw on Stanger this morning. I've killed my last man. I just don't know what to say, Mr. Dillon. I've hated this job since the day I took it. 
They never did have a taste for killing, and now they can find somebody who has. And he'll make a better marshal than I ever was. That ain't true. Go send the telegram, Chester. I'll be at Delmonico's having breakfast. And with a good appetite for a change. breakfast, I went to my room and got some of the sleep I'd missed the night before. And I slept good. It was as though what was past was past. And none of it bothered me now. I didn't have to face it happening over and over again. And when I woke up, I felt better than I had in years. I even felt a little cleaner somehow. There wasn't going to be any more blood on my hands. Washington, as usual, was pretty slow answering my telegram. A week later, I still hadn't had an answer. But I didn't care. I'd quit. And that was that. I even began to enjoy myself for a change. Like the day I finally took Kitty fishing. Another one. Huh? Well, throw him back, Kitty. We got more than we can carry now. I will not throw him back. I'll steal you. <laughs> Come on over here in the shade. You've done enough fishing. Okay. Hey, look at him, Matt. Isn't he a beauty? Yeah. He's bigger than any I caught. Why don't you throw him in the sack and then sit down here, huh? Say, you're right. I didn't know we'd caught that many. Yeah. Maybe we'll have a fish fry tonight, huh? Well, we can feed half a dodge with all those. <laughs> well, I doubt it. You ever see Chester go through a mess full of fish? <laughs> the last time he starved himself a couple of days in advance. Maybe we can kind of sneak up on him tonight. Ah, uh, no. He knows we're out here. Maybe you ought to go into the business, Matt. Oh? No? What business? Fishing. You could do it for a living. <laughs> well, I am going to have to find something to do for a living, I guess. Well... It won't hurt you to loaf for a while, Matt. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. You know something, Matt? What? I think this is the first time I've ever seen you that you weren't wearing a gun. <laughs> it is. And I'm enjoying that, too. Someday, maybe nobody will wear guns. Yeah, maybe. Ugh. You know, something, I'm sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> you're lazy. So lazy, you're probably going to starve to death before you find a new job. I don't care. <laughs> Matt, look, somebody's coming on horseback. No? Uh-huh. Hey. Well, that's Chester. Oh, he's as lazy as you are. Imagine taking a horse to come this far. Oh, Chester hates walking. Besides, he looks like he's in a hurry. Oh, maybe he couldn't wait for that fish fry. Mr. Dillon? Hello, Miss Kitty. Look in that sack, Chester. We got about 30 catfish already. Well, that's fine, Miss Kitty, but 
Mr. Dillon, Joe Stanger's in town. Oh? Well, that doesn't matter to me, Joseph. But you don't understand. Understand what? What I come to tell you. Stanger's at the Alapaganza. A while ago, he had words with one of the girls there, and she slapped him, and he pulled out his gun, and he killed her. What? Who was the girl, Chester? Kate Hawkins. Oh, no. That's who it was, Miss Kitty. And then the bartender tried to stop him, and Stanger shot him, too. And I hear he's going to die. I grabbed a horse off the hitch rail and come right down to tell you, you've got to stop him, Mr. Dillon. I'm not marshal anymore here, Chester. I quit. No, that don't matter. It does to me. You mean you're going to let Joe Stanger walk around Dodge and shoot everybody that gets in his way, including women? I'm through killing. I told you that. Who's going to stop him, then? You're the only man around here that'll go up again him, and you know it. That may be true. But I'm still not going to do it. Wait, Mr. Dillon. Wait a minute. I, I've been thinking a lot about all this lately, and there's something you've been overlooking. Oh? Men like Stanger and Bran, they got to be stopped. I'd do it if I could, but I can't. I ain't good enough. Most men ain't. But you are. It's kind of too bad for you that you are, but that's the way it is. And there's nothing you can do about it. Not now. It's too late. It's way too late. Give me your gun, Chester. Chester. Want my holster? I'll carry it in my belt. Oh, Kitty. Chester will help you carry the fish back. Sure, Matt. Sure. by John Hickman and Norman McDonald starred William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. The music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Bill James, Ray Kemper, and Tom Hanley.
This is George Walsh speaking. Hope you are enjoying the old-time radio programs on the Radio Then.network podcast. You will find many biographies and audio clips from the past on our blog. www.radiothen.network. Check it out and bookmark the blog which also indexes our podcasts. www.radiothen.network.